Ministry Mentorship, Episode 41. Hello and welcome to this episode of Ministry Mentorship. This is Jacob Tapia and you're listening to a podcast dedicated to connecting apostolic leaders with young ministers for the purpose of helping them develop in their ministry. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Pastor Janice Showstrand. Sister Showstrand is a powerful minister who has a passion to train others to do the work of God. Her and her husband pastor the Christian Apostolic Church in Newark, Ohio. She is an educator, musician, and a worshiper. In this interview, you're going to hear her talk about her journey into ministry and much more. Her passion for worship and ministry will be a great blessing to you as you listen to her story. Let's join the conversation now. Well, we're thankful to have Sister Janice Showstrand with us today. Her and her husband pastor the Christian Apostolic Church in Newark, Ohio, and she has completed uh, her doctor's degree in education. Uh, she's a frequent conference speaker, been preaching now for over 25 years. Uh, Sister Showstrand, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, Brother Tapia. I'm honored to be here. Now, tell us a little bit of your story. Well, uh, my story is probably not so different than many people who have been raised in church. My mom and dad were faithful saints in a local congregation in California where I was born and raised. And um, as such, my parents were involved in church from the earliest moment that I can remember. My dad was uh, very active in music. I think my dad was a Sunday school superintendent at one time, a choir director. My mother was uh, very involved in choir. My family sang. My mom and dad both played an instrument, and I was raised around music and worship from my earliest memories. In fact, um, I have a, a, a video uh, was actually a, a, an eight millimeter film of my being dedicated as a baby in the wow. church where I grew up. And um, so everything that I know about people, um, church, uh, talent, everything, everything, my life began in a local congregation with my parents who were faithful members. And uh, that, that's my starting point. You talked a little bit just briefly about uh, worship, and, and I've heard you mention that uh, you feel like you are a worshiper first and foremost. And, and talk to us a little bit about that and how that uh, helped to shape uh, your future ministry. Well, uh, Brother Jacob, unfortunately, uh, although my parents raised me in church as a child, I was exposed to some people who were not in church. My parents uh, didn't know about these unfortunate experiences till much later in my life. They marked me and set me on a course seeking for God because I was so desperate to be healed. And at that time, people were not forthcoming about such experiences, certainly not children. And, uh, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of discussion culturally about such things. And so, um, I think that my need for God uh, propelled me to receive the Holy Ghost at an early age, and I had a very profound experience with God when I received the Holy Ghost at the age of nine. And I think probably from nine till 14, uh, the the Lord was kind of dormant in me. I was a little girl growing up, and um, we had a youth revival uh, 
in our local church in California with Brother David Elms, and um, he challenged our young people to get closer to God. I made a consecration to the Lord then and there, and uh, decided that I was going to um, make myself separate from the people at high school where I was attending, and and uh, uh, I made a consecration uh, in in the way I looked when I did gym, and uh, and then Brother Elms at the end of that revival asked if there were any young people who wanted to testify, and I did the fleece thing. You know, I was so nervous. I waited and waited and waited. And and then I reasoned that I was going to, if it was the Lord calling me to testify on his behalf, I would be miserable the next day if I hadn't. And, and if it wasn't the Lord and I got up and did awful, I would be miserable. And so I just decided since I'm going to be miserable, <laughs> just let me take a chance. And I, I said, Lord, if this is really you, let him say one more young person. He'd already opened his Bible, getting ready to take his text, and he said, I feel like there's one more young person. Mm-hmm. And I got up, and I just remember that fire shot through me. It was like a mm-hmm. blur. I uh, began to talk about the cross and weeping, and I gave an altar call, closed down the service. The young people came forward, and this very precious man, who was very loving and kind, covered me. I did not realize what I had done was was not done. It was untoward and didn't didn't know. I just knew that I'd felt the Holy Ghost and trying to respond to it. And uh, he said, I don't want anybody to to say anything negative. This young girl has just preached every point of my sermon, including mm. the example I would have used for the altar call. And so Wow the Lord marked me from that day forward. I, I was not the same. I began to seek him earnestly. And, um, and my family moved to Arkansas in my senior year. So that was a major change. I, uh, enrolled in a local university, set my sights for God and, um, and began to dedicate and consecrate myself prayer and fasting. I just, wanted God and everything to do with him. And it was that year that I graduated from high school in Arkansas that I met my uh, future husband at an Arkansas camp meeting. And by the next November, uh, we were married. And then we began ministering together in his local church and got our degrees together, evangelized together, came back, got jobs, and became associates and assistant pastors and pastors and uh, working with his mom and dad in the same congregation. So I learned a lot of things about uh, the reality of working with people, and I learned about servanthood. I learned about healing, uh, shared with my husband my experiences as a child, and the Lord used him to promote my healing and realized that um, ministry was much more than uh, assuming a position. For me, ministry was letting God do things for me that he would like to do to other people. I felt like I always mm. had to go first. Amen. So, uh, you know, and the model that I had of ministry that my husband and his family gave to me was very different than a lot of what I'd seen presented. It was all about servanthood and and I, I think probably 
because I owed so much to the Lord, my worship reflected that. I knew who it was who healed me. And I had some profound experiences, and um, and that's how uh, everything I've ever done with and for God has been connected to what He has done for me personally. It has been uh, a calling more than anything else, more than a livelihood. It's, it is a way of life for me. So everything I do revolves around that fact. One of the things that... that it has seemed to come up in some of our interviews uh, with the lady ministers that I that I interview is that sometimes there may have been opposition or uh, some misunderstandings about ladies in ministry. And I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about following your call as a lady specifically and maybe some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame those. Well, I think because I never... Um I never defined myself as the, as a minister in the typical sense of the word. Um, I have always served where I was asked, and music has been a um, a major part of my life as um, a worshiper, and writing songs, singing songs, composing songs. Um, bringing people into the presence of God. And the fact that I talk about what I'm doing while I'm doing it is just incidental. It just seems to be natural that I should speak and mm-hmm. sing. And so uh, I never uh, I never defined nor described myself as a minister, so perhaps I did not face the kind of opposition that some people who were self-described did. Um, always had a covering with my husband. I always felt like I was a testifier uh, <laughs> rather than a preacher, per yeah. se. And and since everybody's called to be a witness, I couldn't see how that would be difficult. Um, I've always operated under the covering of my husband. And so um, uh, I think maybe that has been helpful for me. I don't have a license. I've never sought to have a license um, because I don't think a license qualifies you to be a witness. I think your personal witness is what God has done for you. And I'm, I'm thinking that it doesn't much matter what credential you have if you don't have the main credential, which is your life itself is a testimony to the power and demonstration of God. Amen. And so I'm kind of like the lame man who went into the temple leaping. You just can't argue with results. <laughs> You know, yeah. and, uh, it's very obvious something happened to me, whether <laughs> people like it or not. And they're, they can't argue with the fact that something unusual has gone on in my life, yeah. whether or not they ascribe to that same experience or not, and whether they choose to let me talk about it is entirely up to them. And so um, I, I think if there has been opposition to me, um, I'm blissfully unaware of it. Or I am so naive, I have chosen not to see it. Or I just think that people may be uncomfortable with someone who is so demonstrative. I would find that that has been more, perhaps, the truth. And I think that's more of a spiritual issue. Uh, I think I have an adversary who's always arguing with me whether or not people are. 
And so I would say I've overcome his voice by simply continuing to worship Jesus. And uh, if I ever need to be corrected, I've also learned to take that too. So yeah. I'm I'm in this for the long haul, uh, and I I whatever I have to do to um, share my testimony and to be a witness to Jesus Christ, He's the real thing. That's what I'm going to do. And so I I I have nothing to lose and everything to gain. One thing that you had mentioned earlier that I wanted to just touch on here was that you talked about when you stood up and testified as a young lady that that Brother Elms acted as a covering for you. And, yes, he and, did. And then you also mentioned that your husband uh, has acted as a covering for you. And and I think sometimes as young people we we would look and we would say, well, well who's my covering? You know, who who am I? Who do I have in my corner? And is that something that every every person has? And if they maybe don't have that, how do they get it? Well, first of all, I, I'm I'm very glad you brought that up, Brother uh, Tapia, because I, I think Jesus taught us about that because he always deferred to his Father. He never took on himself the role of minister, rabbi. He never did any of that. Yeah, he just said. Right and always deferred to his dad. He said, I'm doing what my dad wants me to do. And so he never took on himself more authority than he had been given, and he always kept himself in the confines of the parameters that a beloved son would have. So when he made statements, he'd say, my dad... You know, I'm just doing what my dad said do. I'm just doing what my father said do. And in so doing revealed this beautiful relationship that most people would have been extremely suspicious of. In fact, well, people people who were purporting to be ministers were furious at him for claiming an exclusive relationship that he himself had with his father. They they despised him because he claimed an intimacy they didn't have, although they were all supposed to be on the same page. Right. I would say to you that that any person who is in ministry and is truly manifesting the spirit of Jesus will not have to push their way through naysayers. Uh, you won't have to fight. You won't have to contend with people or use, I'm just going to say manipulation, intimidation, or any of the tools that the world uses to get things done, if you're the real deal, the Lord himself will open doors for you. And one of the quickest ways to manifest what kind of spirit a person has is how they defer to authority and whom they let direct them and how they answer questions and how much authority they take to themselves, how much they exercise that's been given to them. You know, to me, that shows a very intimate understanding about how things work in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and everything works by faith, which is undergirded by love. If there is no relationship, no love relationship that anchors people, then there's nothing but people who are fighting or a place, or a position, or a power, 
or an influence on their own. And that is not the biblical model. Jesus showed us what it was. It's love. It's a love relationship. It informs every single thing we do in our families, in our churches, in our ministry. If you don't operate by love, the apostle said it, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. So to people who are young and have a calling, uh, I would say to you, you have got to get in a church somewhere and prove that you understand the principles of the kingdom by submitting yourself to somebody who loves you. And hopefully that's the pastor who's mentoring you, and you will allow yourself to be corrected, taught, chastened. I mean, you have to practice these things somewhere. Right. You have to have a Paul for every Timothy. And so you're going to have to find somebody, and you're going to have to honor them, and you're going to have to be faithful in that. And you can't just use people as means to an end. That is not ministry. You talked earlier, uh, and and we mentioned that you had a doctor's degree in education, and you talked about how you and your husband had finished your degrees together. Talk a little bit about that, uh, how your education has played into your ministry. Well, first of all, I want, I want to make very clear that when my husband and I went to school, this was not the thing to do. I married at 19, and my husband was 20, and we told our parents, both of us were very bright in school, and and our parents, my father never graduated from college, neither did my mother. Both of them were high school graduates. My dad was a carpenter, uh, and my husband's parents, my father-in-law was in ministry. He graduated from ABI, four-year graduate, and my mother-in-law was a graduate of Southern Illinois University. And and that was unusual at the time that she was a graduate. Uh, she had an art degree. Um, the model they showed me before I ever met my husband or married, I was the firstborn in my family, and my dad uh, told me that he wanted me to be able to support myself. And so um, when I met my husband we became engaged, my father and mother, and his parents as well, asked us to give our assurance that we would finish our degrees, because, because as you know, anybody in ministry is basically at the mercy of, of people, or whatever the circumstances people have going for them. And the right. model at the time we were ministering was, you travel around, and evangelize until somebody offers you a position at church. Well, you know, that didn't happen for us. We we evangelized for three years. My husband's father was pastoring. He was not anywhere close to retirement. Um, and the truth of the matter was uh, we had a church of 150 to 200 in a, in a city of 4,000, which is a very good-sized church, a suburb of Little Rock. However... Being unskilled and trying to minister is a limitation, especially if you're capable of doing more. At the time, that was not a model that was practiced among us as an organization. In fact, a lot of people, when they came to the truth of Jesus' name, baptism, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, walked away from professions because it was such a novel thing that they had to take a stand 
and they chose to align themselves and give their lives over. Um, by the time my husband and I were of working age, it became obvious that that model might not work, and our parents, neither set, ever wanted us to be unable to support ourselves. So they had the foresight to insist that we finish those degrees, and um, I loved uh, studying. I, I was very good in school. I, I couldn't think of what I could do with a four-year degree, and I loved Spanish. I wanted to major in Spanish. My husband said, well, my mom's a teacher. Why don't you be a Spanish teacher? And, and it had good insurance, good benefits. And then I realized as time went on that, you know, my model might be wrong. My model was, man, we were going to go live for God. We're going to set the world on fire. But Brother Jacob, that takes money. Hmm. And, and you have to have something to draw people with. And, and people who are very skilled, very intelligent, very capable, very able, you can't make a very convincing argument if you have no skills. And I began to realize that my education could be a blessing. I didn't come into ministry with that. I just wanted to go somewhere and live for God. My husband had a little more common sense, I think. <laughs> and and after three years, he said, we're going home, we're going to get jobs, and we're going to mm-hmm. work in the church. And that's what we did. And I won people to the Lord at work. And I learned my professional skill at work, and I learned about public speaking at work, and um, and I realized that the model the Lord was trying to lead us to was Paul's model, hmm. where he worked in order to afford his ministry, so that rather than relying on people to to um, support me, I could work and support the work of God. So that's exactly what we did. And uh, I got bored about eight years into it. I'd been teaching, and I was ready to leave teaching. I think I had topped out. Um, I saw so many things that needed improving and changing, and the Lord began to deal with me about going back. My husband had already had his master's degree. He was a school psychologist. We'd worked together uh, uh, in the school district, he in one area and I in another. And uh, I didn't want to go back to school. I wanted to change careers. And he reasoned with me that I'd already put in close to 10 years. I was interested in law. And he said, if you go into law, and I'll support you if you do, you're gonna, it's going to take you another 10, you know, once you establish blah, blah, blah. So I went back to school unwillingly. Uh, and then realized that I loved it, and I had an epiphany. I'd been praying, God, show me what to do. I'm utterly miserable. And um, and then a professor of mine, whom I loved uh, studying under, explained to us how he went for his doctor's degree, and the light went on. And I was like, I can do this, and that's why I should. I'm able to do it. It's wrong of me to do less than I'm capable of doing. I'm intelligent enough to do this. I should do it. And and I I didn't know how the Lord would use it, but as a matter of fact, he did use it in considerable ways. I was a guest lecturer at the University of Arkansas. 
Um, I was a graduate assistant as part of my studies. Um, and then, because I have a terminal degree, when I give a speech, when I do a professional event, people can use my uh, uh, sessions for continuing education units. So uh, it's a very practical application. The fact that my degree is in educational administration and supervision is of great help to the church in that I can use what I have learned to help administer the business that is the church, uh, and I do that. Um, it is only this at this time in my life that I'm, I'm not actually working a professional job, but I still maintain my licensure because I want to be able to reach out to my community um, as a professional and not as just somebody who says, hello, this is what Jesus did for me. You know, Brother Jacob, we all have to speak with whatever language God makes us fluent in. And, and Daniel and all of his cohort were intelligent, educated people who served God in the Babylonian Empire. Daniel specifically until he was 90. So there are going to have to be some people who are going to be intelligent, godly, God-fearing, God-committed people that the Lord can use until he comes. And I think that's where we're going. I'm glad my husband and I were among the first. I, uh, our children now um, both have professional degrees. I have a daughter who's a school psychologist and a daughter who's an attorney, both in church, both witnesses on the job, both filled with the Holy Ghost, both paying their tithes, and both involved in ministry. Uh, you know, I think that we need to be able to support the church in every way, and that includes financially. Let's talk just for just briefly, and I know you, you talked about worship and then kind of testifying. Do you have any insight in how you prepare sermons? Well, I may have kind of an unusual bent. I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think probably there are a lot of people like me. I am inspired by what I hear while I'm in church. Uh, I eat at the table that my husband set every week. That's where I get fed. And if I'm not ministering uh, in the congregation, he is. And he typically carries the bulk of that responsibility. So... Um, I eat what he serves, and I digest it. I ruminate on it, meditate on it, and sometimes I take it to a different level. Those thoughts will be revelatory for me. Uh, he may discuss point A and B, and the Lord may give me C and D and take it a whole different direction. So maybe a lot of what he has said, I will take, add scriptures to, and then I have a fresh word for wherever it is I'm going. Uh, a lot of times the Lord talks to me about what's in my own personal life, and I, whatever I'm dealing with is typically what I'm preaching because it's relevant to me. So that's I, I don't typically just pick a topic off the top of my head or out of the blue I've already been thinking daily about things that my husband's been preaching or something has challenged me and I'm searching for an answer in the Word. And and about the time I need to speak, I have that already 
in the cooker, you might say. And so uh, I began, I meditate a lot, and I think a lot, and I ruminate a lot on sermons that I have heard for the week, and where are we going, and what are we doing, and in my own personal Bible reading. And so it will start with a seed thought, and then I'll begin to develop it. Um, After a period of years, there are scriptures that come to you after you've listened so long. Uh, And then I use uh, Blue Letter, blueletterbible.org is a fantastic uh, resource because it has Strong's Concordance, and I can look up the original language. Uh, I use several different versions of the Bible. I always check them against each other because when I speak, I want to be able to clarify any questions people might have without inviting them to ask them. So I try to cover every every possible interpretation you know, or misinterpretation people might get from what I'm saying. Um, And I use BibleGateway.com. I will use commentaries uh, periodically, but I would say uh, that I study mainly by using online, those two online sources, and then by listening weekly to sermons that are coming across the, the pulpit that inspire me. You've already shared some things with us uh, that are some great thoughts, and, and I really know this is going to be a blessing to our listeners. What's, what are some other pieces of advice that you could give to a young person that uh, feels a desire to be involved in ministry? Well, I would say serve where you are. Again, I, I'm, I think that the model that I had of what ministry is is not what it was. And so when I actually began to recognize what it was for real, you know, I had to rethink whether or not I really wanted to do this. The model that's being presented, I fear, to a lot of young people is is much the same uh, as the misconceptions that many people have about what Bible school should do for them. First of all, Ministry is not a collection of people that you know, love, and admire all together, sitting around having parties and talking about the Bible. Ministry is serving people who are not like you, who may not like you, and and serving them in the name of Jesus. It is servanthood, and it's doing it without grumbling or complaining. It's being able to give them from your own personal experiences hope, because you know God personally. Now, if you cannot let God address what's going on in your life, then your ministry is virtually no more effective than what you let Him do for you. Hmm. Because you're either going to offer people something you read from a book, or you're going to be the book. Hmm. And, And if you have to study everything to say, then what you're doing is you're practicing a script, but you're not writing it. And and what is more powerful, now that's not to say you don't need to study, but if you really love Jesus, then you have to start seeing needs where you are. If your pastor needs somebody to clean the church, then ministry is being the first one to step up to that. Now, and and you have to learn that. You have to learn servanthood. Because I submit to everybody that's listening that Jesus was a stepson, a half-brother, and an only child. He's got it covered. Hmm. And at some point, 
Joseph was no longer in the picture, and Jesus probably had to take care of siblings. Hmm. I'm saying to you that he did a lot of dirty work, and carpentry's not fun either, and he learned a skill under a man who wasn't even his dad. So until you are willing to let God work in your personal life, and Jesus clearly had one, then I say to you, whatever hang-ups you have, whatever issues you've got, whatever, you know, I, I feel like the Lord, I can speak to these things now, but that's because you don't know how many hours I spent on my knees mm. weeping and crying my way through, but how come this happened to me? Right. And how come I have to tell this? And I don't want anybody to know. And how come I have to confess this? I mean, if you're not willing <laughs> to if, take the medicine, then you cannot offer the cure. Hmm. So sin that's unrepentant, issues that are unresolved, places you refuse to go to God with. I mean, the Lord can raise up the jawbone of a donkey to do his work. He, it's a privilege to serve him. You can do a work or you can be a work. And, you know, if you want to be a dynamo for Jesus Christ, then you got to submit to the potter's hand. And he he's going to challenge you about your stuff. So I would say First John 1 and 7 is my mantra. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. This is not a social club. Before you even get to fellowship with one another, it's walking in light. And that means the first person you see, when you step up to the plate, I do this every week when my husband preaches, I'm not thinking about what the church needs. I'm thinking about that the woman sitting behind the organ is the first one. My role in the church, as my husband's compliment, is to be the first one to repent, the first one to say amen, the first one. That's ministry. Hmm. I'm the first saint. You follow me? Yeah. They need somebody to take the first step. It's me. Mm -hmm. That's my role. And so I can't lead people where I won't go. And if I walk in the light as he is in the light, then I find other people like me. But we're not a social club. I'm still walking in the light. And then it says, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If I don't understand the need for cleansing, then I don't even understand how the body works. Hmm. And we are a body. And if I won't let the Lord work on me, and I'm lying about what I'm doing or where I am or why I want to be in ministry, and why do I, I've been through all of this. I have asked myself all these questions with tears. Why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. I got to tell the truth. And what am I getting out of this? Because I want to go to heaven. I would hate to think that I have postured as a pastor's wife for the last 37 years, only to find out that I wasn't heaven worthy. Okay. That's why I said I'm a worshiper. That's my main that's my main thing right there. I intend to see Jesus one way or another. And so a young person who is doing this has always got to question their motives. Why are you doing this? Are you honest? Are you transparent? Because you can't lead people in honesty and transparency if you're not. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 
if you're with people, you're going to see unrighteousness on a whole new level. And you can't be shocked by it. I am never shocked at what I hear. It's just me. It's me in a different form. It's me that's not matured. It's me lying to myself. It's me. Everything I see and everybody else is me. It's me making different choices. You know, I don't go, oh, wow, that's horrible. And you can't, if you're not a safe place for people, yeah. if you're not trustworthy, if you, kindness doesn't flow from you, you're, you're a danger to yourself and to others. You don't need to be in ministry. You have to be able to hear people's hearts and not crush them when you do. And mm. when you hear it, you've got to recognize that Jesus is still able to heal the worst thing you've ever heard of, or you'll walk out of there despondent. You have to be able to hear what people are truly doing and not condemn them. You can't do that unless you've been there. Mm. You won't do it. <laughs> and so I would say let Jesus love you first. You need to know what mercy means in order to give it. And the more merciful you are, the more you get it. These are all things I would say. I could probably say hundreds <laughs> more. But <laughs> well, those are very, very good. Very good. Well, I wonder in closing if uh, if you could just say a prayer over that young person right now that uh, while you're talking, something's been just clicking in their heart and, and God's been speaking to them. I wonder if you just take a minute and pray over that young person right now. Absolutely. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to give back what you have given to me. The simplicity that is Christ is that you love us and that there are people who want to love you back. And somebody listening to this has felt your love, and they want to return it. This is the person you're going to teach. I pray you would help them when you begin the process of correcting, instructing, when they feel like you've forgotten them and that they can't ever get it right, that you would remind them that this is how you treat sons. That correction and the way we endure it identifies us as your children in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And that the more correction we take, the more like you we become, because we are not born knowing how to behave. And in order to become like you, you must shape and mold us. So to that young man or that young woman, to that older person who's just getting started, to somebody who's never viewed themselves as worthy but who loves you, I pray you would remind them that they are more precious to you than all the works they could do. I pray you would remind them that you created the heavens, the earth, the stars, and you're still creating things that we'll never see. But because you are creative God, you do things just for your pleasure and that it is your pleasure to become intimately acquainted with this precious person you've called. And if they never do a thing that is outstanding or noted, knowing you is the most outstanding thing anyone can ever accomplish. As Paul said, that I may know you, not just in the power of your resurrection, but in the fellowship of your sufferings. And so I pray that you would help them to forget what's behind and reach for what's before and press to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There is no greater calling than to hear you whisper a name, and then invite us to come forward. And whoever it is, whoever that other people would have walked past and not chosen, like David's six other brothers, you chose the little shepherd in the field, and there is someone listening here who has been perhaps ostracized or rejected, 
thy men, and you have chosen them. May you enfold and guide and bring them to completion. For it is written, he that hath begun a good work, and you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you for this privilege. Let your word continue. An unbroken line from before the book of Genesis till after the book of Revelation. In the sweet name of Jesus, we thank and praise you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for that prayer. Uh, Sister Shostrand, and thank you so much for your passion and your your love for the Lord and and your love for young people and it's a it's a great blessing to us. We really appreciate you being with us today. Well, thank you, Brother Toppy. It's my pleasure. The Lord bless you. You've been listening to a ministry mentorship podcast with Jacob Tapia. Find out more about this resource by going to ministrymentorship.com where you'll find more interviews, inspirational quotes, and other resources to help you develop in your ministry. Thanks for listening, and God bless.